Well, hello, everyone. If we haven't met before, like the host said, my name is Andrew Bondran, and I'm one of the pastors here at Crossroads, and I'm so glad that you guys are here with us today. I want to say welcome to those of you joining us online. Welcome to our West Campus. It's so good to have you all joining us today as well. Now, before we jump into our message, I want to make sure that you guys are aware that coming up next Sunday night, we have a worship night right here at our Newburgh campus. All right, so you can come and join us. The worship night is going to be at 6 p.m. and we are going to offer child care for kids five and under. This night is going to be centered around forgiveness and freedom. And we are so excited about what God is doing in and through our church right now. And we believe that this worship night is only going to accelerate what God wants to do in and through us. So if you're traveling for the holidays, might make it a priority to get back by six next Sunday. Join us in worship. It'll be a great way to get back into the routine of life. Now, I'm also excited about continuing our series Entrusted as we work our way through the book of 2 Timothy. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 14 through 26 today. Now, as you're turning there, I'm going to take a few minutes to talk about this current culture or this age that we are currently living in. Now, as you look around the culture, I don't think it would come as any, it wouldn't come as any surprise if I were to tell you that we seem to be becoming more and more polarized around just about everything. I mean, it's not just significant things, it's just about everything. And this isn't to say that we haven't had division in our country or in our world before. After all, we've got a world or a war called the Civil War that reminds us that we've been extremely divided before. But now what seems to be happening is we're becoming divided around things that are both significant and insignificant. Now, before we jump into any more of this discussion, I want to let you know what you would find out if you Googled, hey, Google, uh, what does polarize mean? Okay, so I did the work for you. I asked Google, and here's what Google told me. To polarize is to divide or cause to divide into two sharply contrasting groups or sets of opinions or beliefs. And it's that idea of two sharply contrasting groups or opinions or sets of beliefs that I think is important for us to look at in our world right now. Now, polarization seems to only be amplified as our ability to communicate on a broad scale has become more and more prevalent. As we now have the ability to access information at any time about just about everything, it seems to only add to the polarization that we experience in our world. For example, right now I have just over 2,000 friends on Facebook. And if you are a friend with me on Facebook, you're not one of the friends. We're really good friends. But believe it or not, there are some people who I'm friends with on Facebook who I don't really know in real life. Okay, But that's beside the point. The fact is, is that out of these 2,000 friends, that gives me the ability to post whatever I want, whenever I want for these 2,000 people to see. There's not really been a time in our history where that accessibility has been there for anyone and everyone to experience. I can say whatever I want, and the thing that I recognize up front is that out of those 2,000, very few will, one, actually see that post, and two, even fewer will actually care, right? But the fact is, is that I have that ability at any time to say whatever I want for the world to see. Now, in just a minute, I'm going to talk about some of the dangers or some of the negative aspects of this technology and how it it operates in our lives. But before we get there, the thing that I want us to recognize is that technology in and of itself is not inherently good or bad, right? 
In fact, technology is an incredible gift from God that can be an incredible tool to advance the gospel that we have been entrusted with. The issue is not the technology, it's how we often use the technology. There's never been a time in history that we've had such access to so much great gospel-centered, kingdom-centered content and music. There's never been a time when we've been able to stay connected with people in so many different areas of the world. And that stuff is all good. But the negative aspect is that that what we've seemed to do is, is rather than take advantage of these good things from technology, we often put ourselves into an echo chamber. By that, I mean we often put ourselves in a position where the only people we interact with or listen to online are people who already agree with us. So what happens whenever we put ourselves in there is rather than having our um, worldview broaden or rather than us being able to see the world through other people's eyes, instead of having that happen, we just have people reinforce what we already believe. For example, again, going back to Facebook, if anyone posts something I don't like, all I have to do is unfollow them, unfriend them, or block them, right? And I never have to hear from them again. I mean, who are they to disagree with me, right? That's how we often approach this technology. So we surround ourselves with people who believe like us, people who think like us. We only watch or listen to news sources that reinforce what we already believe to be true. And as we work through this, the thing that we begin to see is that as we only listen to people who already agree with us, we begin to so grasp onto the the opinions that we hold around anything and everything that it starts to become part of our identity. Maybe that's a certain political view. Maybe that's something going on in the sports world. It could be any number of things. But so often we have a hard time separating our views from who we are as people. Now, this polarization, like I said, is around all kinds of things. If I were to ask the question, what is the best, most unbiased news source? Is the answer CNBC? Is it Fox News? Is it the BBC? Now, the thing that's kind of funny about that is if I were to ask everyone in this room that question or everyone online or at West Campus, I would probably hear it's whatever one you watch, right? Because we wouldn't ever listen to something that that was biased. Or maybe it's not the uh, best news source. Maybe the question is, is, what's the best approach to gun control? Or are you allowed to say the words gun and control in the same sentence? Or what should my position on immigration be? Or what is the best way to approach healthcare? Or should I immunize my kids? Or what's the best economic system? And and I could keep going there. Have I hit a nerve yet? Because if I haven't, I'm about to go next level. Coke or Pepsi, am I right? (laughs) Who is the greatest basketball player of all time? I mean, there's debate around that and and people have their opinions. Sometimes it's, well, what generation did you grow up in? Or is it the player that most transformed the game, the best all-around player, the most championships? And there's all kinds of opinions. Who is the greatest quarterback of all time? Now, there's room for debate there, but the thing that we should all be able to agree on is that his last name is not Brady, right? Okay, there we go. Walmart or Target, right? You could go on and on. And what's crazy is just how polarized we are around these things that are both really important, but then also really insignificant. 
As I wrote that last sentence there this week, the thing that struck me is that I have been in two-hour conversations both about immigration and the greatest quarterback of all time. In fact, I've been in a two-year-long conversation with my brother-in-law about the question about the greatest quarterback. So I am speaking to you as one who is a participant in this, not as one who has mastered this. Now, the result of this is that we often turn to express outrage when someone posts or someone says something that we disagree with. What's funny is sometimes what we express outrage at is actually satire. It's supposed to be a joke anyways. Yet we express outrage because we can't believe anyone would ever believe this. Or it ends up being a made-up news story. Or maybe it's neither one of those. Maybe it's just a straw man argument. What I mean by straw man argument is it's when it's one of those kind of things. It's like a build your own opponent thing. It's kind of like a build a bear and you pick all the weakest elements that someone could possibly believe and you put it together and you say, see, you disagree with me. So you also believe all of this. And so when someone disagrees with us, we just start attacking this person that doesn't really exist because no one actually believes all that you assume that this person believes. And it begins to intersect with our identity. Now, in 2008, there was a study done by Colorado State University to determine what the leading cause of aggressive driving or road rage is. Now, before we go any farther, are there any self-proclaimed aggressive drivers or anyone who's married to an aggressive driver in here? Okay. Last night, I had someone grab someone else's hand and raise it up. So just trying to get a feel for the room, get a feel for who we have here today. Now, as they did this study, the thing that they discovered was that drivers with bumper stickers, window decals, personalized license plates, and other territorial markers not only get mad when someone cuts in their lane or is slow to respond to a changing traffic light, but they are far more likely than those who do not personalize their cars to express rage by honking, tailgating, or other aggressive behavior. Did you guys pay attention to who you park next to today? (laughs) Now, they found that the number of territorial markers predicted road rage better than vehicle value, condition, road conditions, or any other thing that we normally associate with aggressive driving. What's more, it was only the number of bumper stickers, not their content, that predicted the road rage. So it didn't seem to matter if the content was something about peace and love, like visualize world peace, or my kid is an honor student, or if it was something that was angry in your face, like don't mess with Texas, or my kid beat up your honor student. It was only the number that indicated it. Now, why would this be? Why is it that that those statements would be an indicator? The thing that we kind of discover is that it's often, like 10 years ago in 2008 when this is done, a bumper sticker was put on a car not to have a conversation with someone, but to make a statement about something you thought was significant, right? It was something that that tied into your identity. It's making a statement because if we are all honest, I don't think I've ever met anyone who said, you know, I had this thought and this position on gun control, but then I saw a bumper sticker and my whole world was opened up. That doesn't happen, right? That's not what a bumper sticker is designed to do. Now, I bring this up because recently someone drew a parallel for me between bumper stickers in 2008 and social media in 2018. And by that, I mean oftentimes when we post online, what we're not trying to do is have a conversation with someone about gun control or anything else. What we're often trying to do is make a statement about what we assume to be true. 
So we make posts and we make this statement and when someone responds negatively to what we've posted, we take that as a personal attack. So then we go on the aggressive and we just keep hitting them and hitting them and hitting them. And rather than us having an effective, healthy dialogue, we just digress into outbursts of rage at one another where we end up just talking past one another and we never actually engage with the person. And because we have access to so much information, we often feel this pressure that we should have an opinion on everything. And not only should we have an opinion, but we should hold that strongly. And that's just exhausting. Now, at this point, I hope some of you are asking, Andrew, what on earth does this have to do with 2 Timothy? I don't know. I'm just kidding. No, (laughs) I'm glad you asked. If you look at 2 Timothy, you see that this book was written at a time where false teaching was beginning to spread, not just in the community in Ephesus, but also within the church that Timothy was responsible for overseeing. So the question for Timothy was, what do I do about this? How do I respond to this division in the world around me? How do I respond to the division that has now creeped into my own church? And here is what Paul writes Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 14. He says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to fight about words. This is useless and leads to the ruin of those who listen. Now Paul starts off there with two ideas. The first thing he says is to remind them of these things. Now what is he to remind them of? Well, I think that what Paul is getting at is, is the last three verses that Ross hit on last week, which is that hymn that, that Paul closes out that first section in chapter 2 with. That hymn is found in um, 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 13. And here is what Paul writes. He says, This is a trustworthy saying, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You see, Paul started out by giving Timothy this call to remind the church at Ephesus something that I'm here to remind you of today, and that is that God is faithful regardless of what's going on in your life, no matter what's going on in your community, no matter what's going on in our world, God is faithful. In the book of Hebrews, the author writes this in the 13th chapter about the the call just to stay firm in your beliefs. And it says this, it's because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In Psalm 102, verse 27, the psalmist writes this. He says, but you, talking to God, are the same in your years, never end. Paul was calling Timothy ultimately to lift up God's faithful character because whenever we stay focused on God's character, it allows us to press on no matter what else is going on in our world. Now, Paul goes on to charge Timothy, to to charge the people ultimately not to fight about words. Now, what's crazy about this idea is that Paul is talking here about false teaching. But he is encouraging Timothy in the church at Ephesus not to get caught up in fighting about this false doctrine. Now, what's crazy to think about here is if Timothy here is being charged with this, talking about this false teaching that's going on that actually attacked a core piece of the gospel, how much more true is this for you and me whenever it comes to things going on in our society, whether it's politically or in sports or something else? 
How much more important is, us, is it for us to heed to Paul's call not to get caught fighting about words? Now, in this passage, Paul, I think, addresses two common ways that we approach differences. One is the shout louder approach, and that's my personal favorite, all right? I was one of six kids growing up, and one of my spiritual gifts was being the loudest at all times, which meant I won a lot of arguments because people got sick of arguing with me. But that's one approach that we take. And what happens whenever we end up doing this is we end up talking past one another and we never actually address the core issue that we're talking about. One scholar who was commenting on this passage writes this. He says, in the end, disputing about words seeks not the victory of the truth, but the victory of the speaker. Have you ever been there before? You find yourself so wrapped up in an argument with someone else that you actually forget what you're arguing about. As I was looking at this passage this week, that was something that that really challenged me. You know, Andrew, it's probably a pretty good indicator that, that you've lost sight of what you're arguing about when you forget, or that you've lost sight of the truth whenever you forget what you're actually arguing about. But the thing that the Holy Spirit really pressed in on my heart and really challenged me on is that I'm in a lot of conversations with people where I stay focused on the truth, but my goal in that conversation isn't for the other person to see the goodness of the truth that we're talking about. My goal is to end that conversation with hearing the words, yeah, you're right, Andrew, and that's not good either, is it? Whenever we desire simply to justify ourselves, we put ourselves in a really hard spot. When my wife and I are recounting a conversation or an argument or or some instructions I had received before, often I'll keep pressing in until, again, I hear those words, you were right, or at least she sees that, because that's got to be the goal. What are those conversations with you? Is it with a coworker? Is it with a boss, an employee, a sibling? Is it a parent? where you just get so caught up with wanting to see that other, wanting that other person to see that, that you're right, that, that you don't know when to stop. I love how Paul concludes this passage. He highlights that such fighting is not only useless, but it leads to the ruin of those who listen. Paul goes on to write this in verse 15. He says, be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. Now, this charge here that Paul offers is important, but it's also difficult. He's talking specifically to church leaders, but I think that it applies to each and every one of us. The first thing he says is, is don't be ashamed. What's he mean by that? Well, a worker who is approved, who doesn't need to be ashamed, is one who aligns their lives with the message that they preach. Talking to teachers and preachers, he's saying, hey, make sure that that you don't have stuff in your life that that you continually have to be ashamed of because it, it goes away from the gospel you're preaching. He says, hey, make sure that, that the mission of your life lines up with the message that you are proclaiming. But the second thing he says is to correctly teach the word of truth. Now, it's easy for us to jump to a conclusion about what Paul is talking about whenever he says the word of truth there. Or sometimes we just read over it and we don't even think about it. I mean, is he talking about scripture as a whole? 
Is he talking about just words that are true? Well, the good news is, is that Paul doesn't make us actually guess about that. But if you read Paul's other writings, he is pretty specific on what he means whenever he uses those words, the word of truth. Here's what he says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. He says, you have already heard about this, in, or about this hope in the word of truth. Hey, Paul, what's the word of truth? The gospel that has come to you. Or Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, where he says, In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth. Well, what's the word of truth? The gospel of your salvation and when you believed. You see, when Paul says to correctly teach or correctly handle the word of truth, the thing we must not miss is that for Paul, the word of truth equals the gospel. Those two things are synonymous. They go together. And the gospel is the announcement that God's kingdom has broken into our world in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the message that Jesus was the one that God promised to send and that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that was laid out in the Old Testament. And what Paul is charging Timothy to do is to correctly handle the gospel, to keep it at the forefront and to not get caught up in silly arguments. Now, unfortunately, we often have a habit of tying Jesus's name to anything that seems significant to us. And when we do this, I think we do a disservice to the call that that God has given us. As a church leader and a pastor, if you're here today and you've been hurt by someone who has attacked you in Jesus' name about something that's not biblically clear or significant, I wanna say that, I'm sorry. That should never happen. That's not the way that Jesus calls us to fight and that's not okay. I also wanna say that that I think it's important that we are extremely hesitant to tie Jesus' name to much that goes beyond the call and the mission that he's given us. In his book, How the Nations Rage, Jonathan Lehman, who is a leader who was um, at Capitol Hill Baptist Church for a long time, um, tells a story about the senior pastor there. Now, Capitol Hill Baptist Church is about six blocks away from the Capitol building. And so they've got a lot of people there who are in politics. And and one of their members was a senator. And one day the the senator um, calls and asks the pastor to come to his office for advice. You see, this senator was, was the deciding vote that was needed for the Senate to pass a constitutional amendment requiring a balanced budget for the federal government. But the senator felt undecided. He said, my colleagues are pushing me. The party whip, it's pushing me. The the, um, media is hounding me. You're my pastor, how should I vote? The pastor responded, brother, I'll pray that God gives you wisdom. Now, reflecting on this later on, the pastor said, it's not like I didn't have an opinion on this constitutional amendment. The fact is, I had a very strong opinion. So why did he choose not to use that opportunity to push that forward? He said, because my authority as a pastor is tied to the word of God. I know I'm right about the Bible. I know I'm right about the gospel and about Jesus' promised return. And I'm happy to address any political issues that meet this criteria of being both biblically significant and clear. 
Yet the constitutional amendment in question was neither biblically clear nor significant. Therefore, I'm going to preserve my pastoral authority and credibility for the things that Scripture has told me to talk about. Church, I think that if we embraced that as a body, that could transform the way that our world sees Jesus. If Jesus, rather rather than being a pawn in a game, was actually how we filtered our views of the world, that, that would change things for us. Now Paul goes on to say that getting caught up in empty speech only leads to more godlessness in the spreading of false teaching. And he goes on to provide a couple of examples that Timothy would have been aware of. But Paul makes clear that that while false teaching may spread, the foundation that is the church stands firm. The church is all of those who have called out and placed their faith, their hope, and trust in Jesus. And what Paul says is that that solid foundation for all who've called on the Lord and turned away from what was and have turned to Jesus as this firm foundation, all of those people will stay firm. Paul goes on to offer a metaphor in verse 20 to explain what's expected of Timothy. Here's what he says in his metaphor. He says, now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also those of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Now in the ancient world, that was really only true of those who were wealthy and had larger homes where they were able to have vessels that were designated for different things. But the fact is, is that each and every one of us in this room live that out on a daily basis. For example, in my house, we've got a toilet brush, I've got a wire brush, I've got my toothbrush, my wife's got a hairbrush, right? We've got all these different brushes that are set apart for different uses. The fact is that unless my wife Bree is extremely mad at me, the toilet brush and my toothbrush should never be used for the same purpose, right? Paul is ultimately saying that the same is true for us. He interprets the metaphor in verse 21 by saying this. He says, so if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Ultimately, what I think that Paul is saying in that passage is to prepare yourself to be what you want to be used for. Prepare yourself to be what you want to be used for. If you look throughout the scripture, you'll see that God has set his people apart for a special purpose. He set his people apart to represent God to the world and the world to God. But we also see throughout scripture that as God sets his people apart as holy, as God calls people his children, he then says, so now live that way. He says, I've made you holy, so be holy. I've made you my child, so be my child. He says, align your actions with what is your new reality. So what does it look like for us to to set ourselves apart? Paul goes on to explain this in verses 22 through 26. We're going to look at verse 22 and 23 right here. It says, "For or flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but reject foolish and ignorant disputes because you know that they breed quarrels. All too often, I think that, that we um, creep into an understanding of the gospel that, that either says that, that what our life should be about is either sin management or sin avoidance. 
But I think that, that Paul offers us a better picture here. Now, what do I mean by, by sin management? Well, one of the greatest Christian thinkers of the last hundred years is a guy by the name of Dallas Willard. And in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, he talks about the gospel of sin management this way. Here's how he defines it. He says, the gospel of sin management says that you can have a, a faith in Christ that brings forgiveness, while in every other respect, your life is no different from that of others who have no faith in Christ at all. Now, the thing that I want us to see as we look at that gospel is that that's a gospel that says, yes, Jesus gave up his life to rescue you, to give you forgiveness, but he has nothing better for you now. Just go ahead and keep staying in the things that have caused you pain before. Just keep managing that sin in your life. God doesn't have anything better for you. Now, the second thing I mentioned was the gospel of sin avoidance. And I couldn't find any really smart guys from the last 100 years who've written something about this. So I turned to a guy who wears a cat shirt for his staff photo right here. <laughs> gospel of sin avoidance <laughs> says that what it means to follow Jesus is to do your best to avoid sin. And the thing that I think we'll see is that if you creep into the gospel of sin management that says, yeah, there's forgiveness for you, but after that, just try to manage whatever sin you have in your life. There's nothing beyond that for you. Or if we say that the Christian life is all about sin avoidance. So as long as I stay as far away from sin that I can, as long as I stay cleaner than my neighbor, as long as I can stay away from sin, I'm good. I think you're going to find yourself empty. You're going to find yourself missing out on the greater thing that God has for you. Church, I say this every single time that I preach, and it's because I think it's foundational for us as a body to understand who God is and what he's called us to, and that's this. We never grow beyond the gospel. We only grow deeper into it. If we're stuck in sin, the solution isn't to just avoid sin. It's not just to manage sin. It's to press deeper into the gospel and to pursue what Christ has done for us. I love the way Tim Keller defines the gospel. And this is the third gospel I want to present. And it's a gospel that's seen in the preaching of Jesus. It's seen through the apostles. It's seen throughout the New Testament. And it's a gospel that includes the implications of the gospel. Here's what Tim Keller says. He says, the gospel is the good news that through Christ, the power of God's kingdom has entered history to renew the whole world. When we believe and rely on Jesus's work and record rather than ours for our relationship to God, that kingdom power comes upon us and begins to work through us. That's a better word. That tells us rather than us having to manage sin, rather than us having to avoid sin, that whenever we come to Christ, the same power that resurrected Jesus from the grave is now in us to be able to overcome the power of sin in our lives. Again, Jesus didn't just come to save us from the penalty of sin, but also to save us from the power of sin. Near the end of his life, a German theologian by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who just realized he was probably going to be killed because of his role in a plot to kill Hitler. As he was coming to the end of his life, he was writing a letter to a friend about what the essence of the Christian life is. His biographer, Eric Metaxas, summarizes that letter by saying this. He says, being a Christian is less about cautiously avoiding sin 
than about courageously and actively doing God's will. And I think that that's what Paul is saying here as he says, flee from your youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. You don't just run from something, but you run to something. Paul closes out his passage by saying this. He says, The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach, and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Here I think what Paul does is he ultimately brings all that he's written in this passage up to this point together in this last statement. To go back to what we talked about earlier, we often approach disagreements or arguments in a couple of different ways. I talked about my personal favorite, the shout louder approach, but another one is the whole like kill them with silence approach where you know you're just quiet and you ignore it or you just run away from it, that whole approach. But Paul says, hey, neither one of those are okay. He says, hey, don't get caught up in arguing about words. Don't just try to shout louder. Don't just avoid the differences, but correct your opponent with gentleness. That's a third way. (laughs) Actually going to that person and addressing them. Now, the challenging part of doing this with gentleness is that in our world today, that can be viewed as weakness, right? Going to someone who disagrees with you in humility, going to them gently. But what's incredible to see here is again, Paul is talking about an opponent who who was spreading false teaching, but the solution was gentleness. Such an approach, even though it may be seen as weakness, is actually reflecting the way that Jesus fought. It's reflecting the way that Jesus taught us to fight. Now, as we look at this, I want to bring things around and help us to think through how does this passage actually impact the way that we have disagreements with people? I want to talk specifically about disagreements online, but this is important for us also to apply to conversations offline, whether it's with our neighbor, with our parents, with our siblings, with whoever it may be. These are five principles from Ed Stetzer's new book, Christians in an Age of Outrage. And the first one is this. The first thing he says is, remember that everyone is watching. We need to understand that others are watching our online and our offline actions. And they're asking this question, how does that hold up against this person's claim to be a Christ follower? Do those things go together at all? Now, the goal here isn't to be fake. It's not to keep our messiness off of the internet or out of people's faces in order to fool them into thinking we've got it all figured out. Rather, the goal here is for us to actually show the same spiritual maturity online and offline in our disagreements as we try to exhibit in all other areas of our life. The second thing he gives us is this. He says, choose investment over consumption. And right here, the question is this, how does the way you use technology shape who you are as a person that God desires you to be? Is the things that you consume actually shaping you? Is it actually investing in you what God desires you to to be? Or is it simply you consuming whatever is thrown at you? My encouragement here is to take advantage of the opportunity to stay connected with friends and family 
online social media provides. Take advantage of the opportunity to access great online content from great leaders around the world. But also take advantage of the opportunity to learn and grow from those outside of your tradition or your community so that they can expose blind spots that you might have so you can better understand what others actually believe rather than just leaning back to that straw man argument. The third thing he says is this, see people, not avatars. The thing we need to remember is this, behind every online disagreement, behind every disagreement we have with a neighbor, behind every post that we see, behind every disagreement we have with a parent, no matter what it is, behind every one of those conversations is an image bearer of God. Whenever we see that the person disagreeing with us is an image bearer of God, that should drastically change the way that we interact with them. The next thing that he says is this, make grace the default mode. See, what we must not lose sight of is that we have already received grace upon grace in what Jesus has done for us. In that grace that we have received, that we've received grace upon grace, that should then be shown in our disagreements with others. When someone posts something and your first reaction is outrage, or whenever you overhear a conversation going on in public and your first reaction is outrage, remember the grace you've received in Christ and allow that to be your default mode. And the fifth and final thing is this, resist the urge to fight every battle. That's exhausting for me. And and as the church, we need to learn how to better choose our battles. We need wisdom on which ones to interact with. We need wisdom on recognizing when an argument is going in the wrong direction and we just need to step away. We need to recognize that that getting into an argument with an argumentative person is a lot like wrestling with a pig, right? You both get dirty, but only the pig enjoys the mud. Warning, I may be that argumentative person you talk with sometimes. Now, as we put all of this together and I think about what's the call of this passage for us, there were two things that stood out to me this week. The first is this, if you are a Christ follower, Reflect Jesus in the way you fight. (laughs) Reflect Jesus in the way you disagree. Reflect Jesus in your conversations. Reflect Jesus even when you don't feel like doing that. What would it look like if rather than trying to scream louder or rather than just melting away, you chose to approach people who disagree with you in gentleness? Again, Paul here is talking about false teaching that was going around in the church. And if it's true for Timothy then, then how much more true is it for you and I this week on Thursday when someone breaks the cardinal rule of not bringing up politics at the dinner table at Thanksgiving, right? This is something that we can apply. And the the thought that kept coming into my mind as I read verse 25, and I don't know if it's good or not, so take it for what it's worth, but it's this, God grants repentance so you don't have to beat it out of somebody, okay? That's something for us to recognize. Now, the second thing I want to say is for those of you who are maybe new to church, you're new to Crossroads, Maybe it's your first time back in a long time. Maybe you've never even given Jesus a chance before, but you're here today and you have a story that's one of being hurt by someone in Jesus' name. 
Your story is one of someone attacking you in the name of Jesus. If that's you, I wanna say that I'm sorry. And the thing I want us all to recognize is that the reason we are gathered here today is that Jesus, rather than rightly condemning and attacking his opponents, chose to go to a cross for his opponents and ultimately die for me when I was one of his opponents. And if that's how Jesus approaches his opponents, how does that change the way we do that each and every day? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the words from Paul here. I thank you for this truth. God, I thank you that you've given us grace upon grace and I pray that your grace will transform us into the servants that you desire us to be. God, you are good and we thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.